Don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast isn't just a podcast. The clue is in the magazine bit. We were a magazine first and we still are. We're a monthly magazine. And right now you can subscribe for three issues for £5. Just check out cyclist.co.uk. And there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running, which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet, which is a very, very light gilet, which apparently, I know I've got the jacket version, and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it because that's how thin the thread is. And this is a gilet version. So it's probably, you know, it hasn't got the arms, but it's probably got about 40K in it. But they're really, really good. They're weatherproof, windproof, all that jazz. I can absolutely vouch for it. It's a £75 free gift for subscribing, ladies and gents. So check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now. Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, James Spender, your only host today. I don't know why I found myself alone, but here I am and here you are. Just just me and you, listener. And I've done I've committed a cardinal sin. I've just been eating before coming on air to record this, which apparently you should never do. We had some podcast training. I know. Mental, right? I am actually technically trained to do this. Uh, we had some podcast training that the uh, instructors were like, yeah, never eat. Do it after 11am, don't do it in the morning and don't eat for an hour before you come on because otherwise, I don't know, you get that weird thing that maybe you may have spotted Ed Miliband doing or looking like when he's got like, it's a bit gross to say really, quite a lot of kind of saliva knocking around around his molars um, if you look deeply into Miliband's mouth. But he's not on the news so much these days, is he? And none of this has anything to do with cycling. Um, What does have everything to do with cycling is our guest today. It's uh, Nigel Mitchell. And you're best known, Nigel, I think. He is a well-known name, I think, in cycling for his work as a sports nutritionist at Team Sky. Back in the heyday, the marginal gains heyday uh, of Wiggins winning a tour and Froome winning multiple more. He had people like G in the team. Cavendish was there. Steve Cummings was there. Luke Rowe was there. It was just an all-star cast. And Nigel Mitchell was brought on by Dave Brailsford to revolutionize the way that the team ate. And he really did so, as we'll find out in the pod. We talk about a lot of different topics today. How to how to fuel, so what to eat, whether you're a pro, whether you're an amateur whether you're a kind of club level rider, just how that all works and you know how many of those devilish little energy gels or anything else you should be eating per hour. We talk about ketones, what Nigel thinks of those. We also touch a little bit on uh, Nigel's work as a sort of celebrity chef writing cookbooks and his uh, latest cookbook, I think, is The Cyclist's Cookbook. And before that, The Plant-Based Cyclist, which is about vegan cooking and how you can fuel with a vegan diet and still, you know, do endurance sports, which Nigel also did. Nigel, as we touched upon, did live a vegan lifestyle for three months and uh, yeah, really, really reaped the rewards. So lots and lots of stuff to unpack. And also right at the end, you should definitely keep going to the end because it's the future of sports nutrition, what things are going to look like, how we're going to get faster and a lot of it is to do with, well, I won't, I won't spoil it, but it's not quite what you might think. And there's also one household, like under the, cu- under the cupboard, back of the cupboard, household item that can actually 
boost your performance like nothing else. And the pros have been using it for years, apparently. So yeah, keep tuned for that. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Mr. Nigel Mitchell to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. A very strange place to start this podcast, Nigel, which I've never said to any guest before, is last night <laughs> I was dreaming about doing this podcast. I don't know why, um, some kind of anxiety. And very strangely in the dream, you and I were smoking in our respective houses, which I think probably is the absolute antithesis of a man who has cut his entire career helping athletes. I can't imagine the cigarettes have, have really entered into it. It's uh, funny you say that because uh, no, I've uh, I've never smoked, don't smoke, and to be honest with you, uh, I weren't really giving too much thought about the podcast until this morning when I were out on the bike, and I thought I've got to make sure I'm back in time because I've got the I'm doing a podcast with James. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's really nice to be here with you and have this opportunity to share some of my insights and and uh, philosophies around nutrition and cycling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, lots, so lots of people will know you from Team Sky days, which, you know, you were with Sky from the beginning, right? So that's actually Sky officially launched in 2010 as a team. But, you know, you would have been working with them, I'm assuming, in the year before that at least. How did you get into that side of working in sports nutrition? Well, really, I've, I've been involved with the Sky project for quite a few years before it started, before I even knew it was the Sky Project. So I'm a, I, I was trained as a state-registered dietitian. And the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist is that to be a state-registered dietitian, it's a clinical training and it's a regulated body. Whereas from a nutritionist perspective, basically anybody can actually call themselves a nutritionist. But... We are trying to look at professionalising. So there's a, a, an organisation called uh, SENR, which is Sport and Exercise Nutritionist, and there's a certain level of qualifications and competences people need to register for that. So I trained as a dietitian, but my interests were always in sport. I was brought up in very sporty family, in a cycling family. Uh, my mother used to ride the bike and race with Beryl Burton in the 50s and 60s. Oh, wow. So, wow. So, so I brought up with it from a, from, a, from a small child. And when I was 16, I remember supporting my mother riding the, the North Mids 12-hour and feeding a, feeding a rice pudding to keep her going around <laughs> then. And, and, and one of the things that's quite interesting, sort of 20-odd 20, 20 years later, basically doing the same thing with Bradley Wiggins and Chris Froome at the Tour de France. So my, my interest and passion were always about nutrition and sport. I graduated as a dietitian in 91, and there weren't really the opportunities then to work as a practitioner in sport. And I had a fantastic clinical career that really set me up for a lot of the work that I did in cycling. And some of this work has really been adopted and advanced by other teams, and in particular around thinking about the gut function, gut health of riders. And then in the very early 2000s, I got involved working with British Cycling. And so the natural genesis of them working with British Cycling when Dave were looking at setting up Team Sky, was then actually working within the World Tour uh, Team Sky as well. So I was part of the original sort of backroom team that were 
there was looking at the organisation of the medical and the sports science support service uh, with Team Sky. And, and obviously a lot of the riders, uh, the GB riders, were riders that we'd supported through through British Cycling. So I didn't really know that that were in the plans. And then one day, you know, Dave says, right, you know, uh, setting up Team Sky, I will work in on a part-time basis with British Cycling. And he said, look, will you come and work with us in Team Sky? The opportunity is to, from the ground up, is to design the food and the nutrition strategy for the team. And so for me, that was an amazing opportunity. And it was great because I'd not worked in the old school uh, professional cycling. So I could come in at it, come a bit with a fresh set of eyes and almost a naivety. So, you know, I remember going to a conference, which must have been in, I don't know, 2008 or something like this, 2009, in Belgium, talking to Belgium doctors. And they genuinely believed that people couldn't even ride things like the Tour de France, without taking some IV recovery. So that's not necessarily doping at that time because IV recovery were allowed. But they were saying that the, the digestive system cannot cope with that volume of food and the stress of the cycling. And I'm going, you're wrong there, mate. You know, actually, if we look after the digestive system, then we can. And that's been proven right. But at the time, the convention was... You could only even get through these races by finishing the race, having an IV drip, having vitamins injected, etc., etc. So it was a fantastic time where you're just at this cusp of where you're going from where there'd been this inerrant doping culture, this culture of using needles, to what were very quickly transitioning into no needles to you know, really this zero tolerance around doping. So coming into that as a dietitian, where my basic principles is around using food and nutrition to support health and clinical outcomes, to then transfer that into using food and nutrition to support health and performance was a perfect timing. And, and really, when I started... When I look at it, to my knowledge, I was the only and I was the, the first reputably qualified nutritionist, dietitian, working at that level within cycling. And now every team employs at least one full-time person. A lot of the teams are now employing multiple people. I'm not quite convinced that there's the work, but this is what the teams are wanting. And, you know, when I'm working for Sky, my biggest ever time commitment for Sky was on a on a 0.5 basis. And I could see how the demands within the team were growing and growing and growing and the expectations were growing and growing and growing. And because I like a diverse portfolio of work, then... For me, I didn't want to fully commit to working cycling. We'd achieved the projects that we set out to do, so then it was time for me to move on from Sky. But it is interesting that a lot of the things that we did then is really replicated throughout the pro peloton now. And a lot of the things that we were doing, and the riders never really knew it, was about protecting their digestive systems so that they were able to absorb and tolerate the food so that they can recover 
and they can do the racing that they're doing. Yeah, so that's really interesting that to have a sport that we see as, you know, it's often touted as the sort of the human version of F1, right? It's just the pinnacle of human performance and also equipment performance and everything else. And, you know, races are won and lost by by bike throws. And it's so odd to think that most, you know, as recently as 2010, you're the only nutritionist in the world tour. And I wonder what you saw coming into it, because I think anyone that's been around cycling for a long time, and certainly people that have heard this podcast before, will know those kind of old school tales, like Sean Kelly taking the whites out of the middle of the, the bread and just eating the crusts <laughs> and saying, no, ice cream, like ice cream is just completely banned. And I was... This, I came across this a while ago, this brilliant guy called um, Mile a Minute Murphy, Mick Murphy, who was an Irish rider in the 1950s. And he swore by drinking cow's blood, uh, which he'd learned from the Maasai Warriors. And apparently he used to carry a pocket knife with him. And he'd go out on rides and he'd nick a vein on a cow and he'd squeeze it into his bead on. So I'm, I'm thinking, you're coming in. I know you've been working with, with G and with, with Bradley and people at Team GB, but you're coming into the world tour and you're working with international riders suddenly, you've got Italians and Belgians and Norwegians on Team Sky. What were you seeing then in, in terms of cycling or cyclists and their nutrition that made you go, you know, what the F? <laughs> what are you guys doing? Yeah, I mean, you, you raised some really good points and one of the things to say, I mean, I only finished working in World Tour uh, a few years ago. Um, you know, I went from Team Sky to work with EF and there were still some of the old school DSs would still be doing that where they'd be having the bread, they'd be pulling the dough out and then they form it into a little queue and if you ask them why they do it, they drop it into water and then it expands and it says that's what it does in your stomach. <laughs> so it, 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 it carried through. So coming back to what you're saying, what one of the things that were important was that somebody like myself that were coming into professional cycling, not really experiencing professional cycling, it were critical not to come in and wagging finger and telling people you should be doing this, should be doing that. It were much better to actually listen to what people's experiences have been, trying to learn from that, trying to learn what the negatives were and what the positives were. And when it was a negative, then we go, okay, how do we overcome that? When it was a positive, to then actually try and break that down and see what the science behind it was. So I remember I spent a lot of time talking to retired riders. I remember talking to Max Schiandri, who got such a wealth of knowledge. And he'd be telling me that to get to the the third week of the tour or a, or a, a grand tour, this had been laid in bed on a night, and they said the abdomens had been distended and they'd have really bloated stomachs, and they're just then really struggling to eat, and they're really struggling with appetite. So I'm thinking about that. What is it that they're doing that's causing that? And a lot of that then is around the drinks that they were using at the time. A lot of that, or my belief is, it was around the drinks they were using, and it was around some of the foods, that the volume of food that people are eating – that could could over increase the like the fiber. So, I remember talking to Simon Gerrans, and he's basically describing to me fermentation in the large bowel, and it's because of you know it's going. To, I need to get on me on all the salad. I need to get all this in, and and fiber is so important that the amount that people could be eating could actually then cause some problems with these guys 
and and so thinking about how do we how do we solve these problems so one of the things we'd already looked at when we were looking at sports drinks was neutral ph sports drinks so at the time and many sports drinks now have got quite a low ph and this is because traditionally most sports drinks have got citric acid in and citric acid has got a low ph and there's nothing wrong with taking you know 500 mils of this it's not going to hurt you but if you're expecting somebody to be taking you know five liters of it in the day then and also when we are exercising in the heat then this is putting more stress on the gut. And so by, from the, my clinical experience, we're thinking, well, if we can really maintain the gut health and how we're going to do that is one, is we're going to try and reduce the severity of the environment by one, looking at using neutral pH sports drinks, pH 7. And and then when we are looking at the, the foods that we're going to make them, those easier to digest. And what is the things that can cause the stress? So one of the... One of the things that we did at Team Sky was that when we look at, again, very traditionally people, as soon as they finish a stage, they might have a, a can of Coke or something like this. And what we were trying to do was create a performance environment. So one of the things we, we would say is, well, actually, sodas like that, again, if we're having a lot of it, are not great for our gut health, so it doesn't support performance. So that's not something we're going to give you. We're not saying that it's banned, so I wouldn't say to a rider, you can't have that, but what I'd be saying is we are not going to give you that. If you want that, you go get it. When you get to the hotel, you go buy it yourself. So there were no banning. There were no going, you can't, we, we don't do this, but what we are going to do is just provide you with things that support your performance. And so some of the things that we that we did a lot, and again, you see some of the teams doing it, we do things like a lot of vegetable juicing, and, and one of the reasons that we do the vegetable juicing is that when we juice the vegetables, we retain all of the soluble nutrients in the juice and we retain the soluble fibre, which is less fermentable. But you're removing a lot of the heavier fibre, which may cause some issues with some of the riders further down the line. Now, I'm not saying that somebody who's a, you know, like myself, who's a recreational bike rider, that's going to be of any real benefit to them. But because of the volumes that these guys were eating, then it just meant that that were easier on the digestion and easier easier on the stomach. And we would do we'd do things around hydration. So again, in the past, as I said, there'd be a lot of IV hydration. But the, the body's great at absorbing fluids. So we would develop strategies that would have a positive brand to it that would make the riders think that actually this is really good for me so we'd have what we'd call you know in the top three we'd say they've got this positive hydration strategy and what we'd look to do is on the morning at the at the races the the, the riders would give a, a little urine sample look to get a, a weight off them and by doing that we could just see roughly how their hydration is going. It's not the most precise method. But the fact we were were looking at doing that with the riders showed our intent, and that actually increased their awareness, and it meant that we had very few hydration issues with the riders. And what we would do with them when they went to see the doc, they'd be given some some sort of fruit juice, like a, a cherry juice, something like this, that would be that would encourage them to drink. And, and and then after the races, again, we'd be looking at straight away, they would have, uh, again, some sort of an hydration fluid 
or, you know, there'd be a recovery drink. So we were just straight away going, we're trying to do everything we can that is promoting your performance. And we say, we see every team doing it now. And I think one of the things I just must sort of correct myself on, when I was saying that when I started in cycling, or the first, what you'd call a reputable nutritionist, other teams did have people looking at nutrition, but there were were very often somebody who come from a sports science background, like a physiologist, or it might have been the doctor. So a friend of mine who did a lot of good nutrition work with the Ogami State team was uh, Alan Lim. But Alan is not a trained dietitian, is not a trained nutritionist. He works within that area, but he'd come in from the sports science side. So he did have an interest and he did some really good work, but he weren't coming at it as a somebody who is a, you know, their job is as that nutritionist. Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers a training plan specific to your needs. But the really smart thing is how Join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then Join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal. It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair Join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts. Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of The Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join. So thinking about a classic kind of day at a Grand Tour um, and your nutritionist at Sky, what does their feeding feeding that sounds like they're all animals what is the fueling strategy <laughs> i always love it when it's called the feed zone and it's like it's almost like you're given a horse bag right in musette um but the the fueling strategy um across a stage you know so let's take a, an average uh six hour stage that's got plenty of mountains in it because we're often told as amateurs through you know literature that you know marketing gump basically that comes from um, nutrition companies that you need to be taking say three gels per hour or that's an awful lot of gels for example so what were you telling your riders to do hour by hour in terms of eating and also as as, you know for the hours that finish because i'm assuming you know nutrition doesn't stop because you've stopped cycling no so really when we're looking at that fueling piece then you've got to look at it as the full day. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and and really, you know, I've, I've said before with professional riders, they're in a fantastic position where all they have to do is ride the bike. So they get up in the morning, they go and have the breakfast, they jump on the bus, there's opportunities to eat on the bus. So there's everywhere, there's just opportunities to be eating all the time. When they're then starting the race, then they're able to be fed throughout the race. Then once they finish, the the practice would be the first thing that they would be having would be a recovery drink. And the idea with a recovery drink is that you would be getting some protein, you'd be getting some carbohydrate, there'd be some micronutrients in it. Once they've had that and they get on the bus, then we'd have food on the bus. And that would be, you know, one of the things we would do is we'd have 
a pressure cooker on the, an electric pressure cooker on the bus and we'd have different type of meals that are on that which would be chicken and veg we had rice cookers that would have rice so then they can eat through and, and this is all real food and that's an important part then when they get back to the hotel they're on massage they go to the food room and they'd have some snacks in the food room have the massage have dinner or they might have dinner then massage then they'd have some some further snacks from the food room. So their opportunity for that refueling, pre-fueling is just constant with them. So when we come to the stage, and one of the things that's, that I want to talk about is where things have evolved now with the with the feeding and the fueling. So when we when we started with Sky, I mentioned that the commercial sports drinks that were out there wasn't something that were really that I were wanting to use with our riders. So we we used uh, our own drinks that we got formulated, which were you know uh, uh, usually including some sort of a maltodextrin, some fructose, and some electrolytes. And what we could do is with this actually we could use higher levels of feeding. So that then, and we wouldn't necessarily be doing this with every rider because we'd be looking at. At what people are doing so so back then the sort of uh the accepted uh sort of carbohydrate feeding would be as a maximum about 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour but uh we, we'd be looking at upwards of about 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour what's super interesting now is a lot of riders are using as much as 120 140 grams of carbohydrate per hour and this is really interesting in that what I'm not sure with is it how the racing's changed that's really meaning, which is becoming a lot more explosive, a lot more glycolytic, a lot more carbohydrate burning, so that, that, that you know, we've got these drinks evolving, or is it that actually the drinks are now commercially available where people can take these large volumes of carbohydrate without having the GI, GI issues. So it's a really interesting area how it's evolved. So what we'd be looking at within within the stages is that we'd be wanting to provide the riders as they're racing with at least 60 to sort of 80, maybe 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour. And that would be in lots of different forms. I was trying to move away from the real sort of traditional Belgian ones of where they'd be literally having like a fruit pie and <laughs> and it, it, it will you know just a pastry with the you know the, the all sorts of different concoctions with them. But again, you had to listen to some of the riders because a lot of the riders would go, well, you know, in when it's cold in the classics and you're trundling along then actually having something solid in your stomach is really good. And you go, oh, okay, right, I understand that. But what we did, we evolved the solid feeding into, so we, in, I think every team do these now, the, these rice cakes, the, the, the solid rice cakes. And that really came about to try and get a solid food, which is super easy digested, that, is completely digested because one of the other problems if you're eating a lot of food on the bike it can create what we call fecal mass in other words poo and we're not wanting people feeling they've got to stop and have a poo so your rice cake is pretty much fully digested so you know i think as as a team at sky we were the we were the first team that was sort of really pushing that out there and, and also part of 
part of the culture of what we were trying to do in the team was to try and, not that we were wanting to give trade secrets away, but we were trying to demonstrate that the sport was evolving and changing and that actually you could race the Tour de France without using IV recovery. You could win the Tour de France without these things. That it can it can be done. So we wanted to try and share that. Obviously, you know, everybody knows in history the the messaging wasn't always great. But this is what so these were some of the things that we were trying to do. And so back to your question around the fueling side, it was all about really trying to ensure that the riders had the opportunity to take on what we considered at the time the optimal fueling. As I say, with time now, that might be slightly different. But at that time, this is, we're going, we've got everything that we can do that's going to provide everything you need. And we would use gels as well, but it would be mainly coming from things like the rice cakes. Uh, It'd be coming from these higher carbohydrates. So the standard carbohydrate drinks at the time, you know, there may have been sort of 6% carbohydrate in it. So, you know, uh, in a in a litre, there'd be 60 grams or so 30 grams maybe. In a, that'd be considered quite high. We, we'd be quite often having in a, in a bit in sort of like 10, 15% carbohydrate within that. And these could be well tolerated because there were nothing else in the bottle. And again, one of the things where it's evolved, where I was saying that a lot of the teams are now employing multiple you know, nutritionists, what they're wanting is for a lot of the riders that they've got individual, individualized feeding plans for the races. And that was something that we would do with uh, some riders uh, where we'd look at, you know, for the race, we'd look at, look at the profile of the race and then go, okay, this is where we want to make sure that we're really pushing the, the car back, the feed in there. We'd work with the DSs to remind them about that. And so some of the races, we, we would put very detailed plans in around the, the feeding. And then that came out. I mean, uh, um, I brought uh, James in to take over from me from Sky, and he did the he did the plan for when Chris won that stage. I think it was the 2018, 2017 Giro. Oh, where, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. So that were all... You know, that were actually quite standard operating procedures where we would have very detailed feeding on particular stages. But again, the whole idea is as you set things up, then it evolves and gets better. And so that will then take it to another level. So yeah, just just for listeners who um I'm not gonna remember the stage, but that was that was Froome going on an incredible, incredible breakaway. Unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable breakaway. So that's that's interesting actually, because that that reminds me of something that I've um came across recently, which was, you know, sensational internet headlines, obviously, but it's the evolution of energy supplements and sports nutrition particularly is the single biggest change or has created the single biggest change to professional cycling since EPO. That was effectively the headline and it's this idea that the way in which carbohydrates can now be mixed constructed and then you know fed and absorbed into the human body is the reason why people like chris Froome can do what they do it's given this kind of turbocharged energy to riders but it does sound kind of fantastical do you feel like like sports nutrition or carbohydrate delivery particularly has actually impacted professional cycling 
to that extent? Because that you know, there's there's good evidence of, according to this one source anyway to support that. <laughs> well, I mean, there's probably a full podcast in itself talking around this area. <laughs> yeah, I, for sure, when we're cycling, when we're doing exercise, the harder we work in, the more carbohydrate the body uses, and that delivery of the carbohydrate is then critical for the maintenance of that higher workload. However, even if you just keep maintaining really high carbohydrate intake all the time, people still fatigue. There's other aspects that cause fatigue. But if we are able to deliver consistently the carbohydrate that the body is using, then it will enable people to work at a higher level for longer. And so I would say it's, I wouldn't personally use that type of headline, but I would agree that having more effective, better effective fueling for professional cyclists will have had a serious impact on the way that people are racing. Again, even, even when I started, it was still very much, you know, if you've got like a 250k sort of stage or 220k stage, You'd have somebody go in the break, and then yeah, the the general peloton. If you looked at the average wattage of the riders, it weren't that high. The last fifty k would be flat stick, and so you know when we're getting to that last fifty k, it's then how the body can use the energy and the carbohydrate. And a lot of the philosophy around at that time was trying to conserve as much energy as you can until that until that sort of last fifty k, and the 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 fact that we, we at Sky at that time were looking at providing not that far off from what people are doing now from 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 that energy perspective may have had a, a significant impact on the performances but it's 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 difficult to say but again a lot of the teams are now doing exactly the same thing and now these neutral pH high carbohydrate fructose, Multidextrin, clusterdextrin, all these, all these different products are now commercially available, and which they weren't commercially available at that time. Yeah. Do you feel like they, they obviously have their place in professional sport in the way that you know a, a very a high octane mix of petrol has its place in race cars. But for your, you know, for, for the likes of me um, or listeners who are just, you know, we're 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 happy. Happy journeyman cyclists, journey people cyclists. Does a an energy gel that promises to deliver up to 120 grams of carbohydrates to your body or the equivalent thereof per serve per hour, does that really have a place in an amateur's jersey pocket, or is is it just a bit of nonsense? Because frankly, who's burning that much, or it doesn't actually work anyway? Well, James, that's brilliant because that was the main thing that I really wanted to talk about <laughs> today. Uh, because this is something I'm really interested in, and, and passionate about is uh, is looking at getting the appropriate fueling for the work that you're doing. Yeah. And the concern that I have, so just going back one step, in recent years, things like sports drinks have had a bad bad rep and the the usage was going down this was for lots of reasons high sugar content high karyogenic teeth etc but now we're going actually you know what we can push up the carbohydrate more and really help in the performance when people are doing 
these longer exercises. And I'm, I'm going, look, you know, really, this is a, it, it's really got to be over two hours. You know, it, there's, again, looking at these high levels, we're not going to get any benefit. And uh, the so part of my work now, I work as a, an academic at Leeds Beckett University, and we've got a lot of interest in, in fueling. And some of the work we, we've done there with elite athletes is where we're looking at their their ability to oxidize the nutrition they're giving. So, so we can do this by looking at the enrichment of carbon. And because you're measuring the gas exchange, the carbon dioxide being breathed out, you can actually really in precise and really quite precise and accurately look at the percentage of the food that people are eating or the, the, the drinks that people are drinking that they're oxidizing. And we can see that we can be gaining as much as 90%, which is really, really quite high with some of the some of the sort of concoctions that we're putting together. Then we break it down and we go, what's on first principles? So for me, when I, if I go out and I armor myself, I'm able for two or three hours to maintain sort of 200 watts on, on the flat road around York. And that's me hammering myself. So if I then look at actually what my energy expenditure is, so if I'm doing that, then I'm burning about 600 calories per hour. So then I go, okay, how much of that 600 calories per hour is coming from carbohydrate? How much is coming from fat? And for me, if I'm looking at where my, how much I'll be doing, it's going to be roughly maybe 50-50. So if I break that down, 600 calories per hour, 300 calories coming from carbohydrate, and I go, okay, so how many grams of carbohydrates that? We go roughly four grams of in a, uh, calories in a gram of carbohydrate. So divide that 300 by four, so I'm coming out at like, I don't know, 70 or 80. So even as a, as a maximum, I'm only going to be burning 70 so grams of carbohydrate per hour. So there's absolutely no point in me taking 120. At the same time, because of what I'm doing, I've got some reserves. And part of what I'm, what, why I'm wanting to do this is because I enjoy it. So I don't want to feel that I've got to be eating every two minutes to get this in. So I can go out and enjoy my three-hour ride where I'm having a really good effort and I'm eating about 40 grams of carbohydrates, and that's absolutely adequate for what I'm doing there. But if we scale it up, and, and I'm getting that from bananas. I love bananas. <laughs> so I'll go out and I'll have, uh, on a three-hour ride, I'll, I'll get through two to three bananas, and I'm super happy with that. But if I was an elite athlete and I'm averaging 300, 320 watts, and I'm burning more like more in the region of 1,000 calories an hour, then that and and I'm really trying to race. Then that hundred, maybe hundred and twenty grams an hour becomes much more appropriate, if that makes sense. And there's and the, and there is the research coming out now saying that people are oxidizing a lot of this higher level carbohydrate. But these are elite elite athletes, and some of the work we've done where we've been testing elite athletes, we can do this. But these are people that are, you know, doing much longer races and they're averaging over 300 watts, so they're burning it. So the long long answer, but the short bit, is that for your average club rider, you are not going to be really oxidising, burning, all that carbohydrate taking. And for a lot of people, the reasons why they're riding the bike, part of it is looking at maintenance of body weight. And you could quite easily, if you weren't careful, be consuming more of that carbohydrate 
than what you're than what you're going to be burning. That's interesting, and that also reminds me of another old school cycling adage that I'm going to attribute to Yanto Barker, where he said, "Don't eat for anything less than four hours." <laughs> so if you go out for a ride, <laughs> well, anything up to four hours, no, no eating. Well, it's in, again a lot of the old school riders would go. What what they would do is at the start of the season they would take a big spoon of olive oil and they'd go out for oh, two hours until they bonked. The next time, they'd go for a two and a half hours, three hours, and be building it up. But what they would actually be doing, and this is, again, one of the things I learned that we then put into the fueling, into the training strategies for like, uh, for like Bradley and Chris, was we'd be looking at fueling for what we were trying to achieve. So part of the philosophy then was that what you wanted to try and do is improve that efficiency where we're able to produce more wattage when we're oxidizing more fat. And the body will burn what's available. So if you do put a lot more carbohydrates in, you'll burn more of that. And if you've got people that are in this uh, uh, sort of more of a fasted state, then it will encourage fat burning. And so what we'd look to do is that there would be some sessions where we would be looking at, more of that type of an approach and then with the other sessions which have got and, and they'd be much more steady type of rides and there'd be other sessions which are more energy demanding and we would fuel as if the riders were, were racing and so what you're trying to then do is develop all of those energy systems and again this is how a lot of riders are training today where there's still you know, the, 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 on the three-day blocks, which a lot of guys do, that first day, the, when they're well-fueled, they'll be doing more intensity, and then on the last day, tends to be uh, might be easier, and they might not be quite as well-fueled. So again, they're still working these, these systems. Did you ever work with riders who were just really weird outliers on either end of a spectrum of what is normal to eat? So some riders would just be like, you know, they do a whole classic and barely eat a Mars bar. Or a banana, probably, and other other riders <laughs> who are just like hammering food consistently throughout the day. Did you any any names of riders and, and what those fueling strategies look like? Yeah, I mean, to to be fair, you'd never had any rider that would be in from a race situation would be uh, not eating. You would have some riders who weren't as good at drinking. I mean, I'm just remember now back with uh, uh, Kirianka. He was somebody. I mean, he was he was just so hard as a bike rider. Unbelievable, what Kiri. He, he, you, when they were asking him about you know tire tire pressures, and they said, "What sort of pressure do you want?" Kiri says, "Hard." Yeah, how hard? Really hard. And <laughs> uh, and on, on his cycle computer, he just had the time on his uh, <laughs> on it on it on, on his cycle. And he and he's somebody who you know, did seem to be able to go a long time without having much, but he would take things when, when giving it. But you had, you also had, you know, you, you, you had, a, the, you had the, the riders who were really believing in the system and, and what they were doing and, and actually wanted that sort of discipline and plan. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating when you look back in you know in the nineties and previous, and I'm, and it would have been really really interesting to see what you know people people who were winning the tour 
in the in these days what what they were doing. But if we go back and we and we can see in the Merckx's era, then again the style of riding were different. So you'd have that one dominant rider, and you know they were eating a lot of baguettes on the bike and things. So they were still getting the carbohydrate. And it would be really fascinating if we'd got power cranks on those riders to see what they were now. But I do think that the thing where we're seeing in the in the pro peloton is that this the opportunity for the riders to have nutrition that is supporting performance is across the board now. And I'm talking to uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jacob Tipper, who, who does. Uh, uh, coaches uh, Ben Ely and and he's a really good coach and he's his next pro rider himself and he was saying to me he said the thing now even in, even at junior club level the information is there so everybody can access this information it's making it then applicable for them so when we we were really looking at putting this together uh, for Team Sky. We were having to work more on first principles than on actually what is the information out there. Absolutely. So, and, and one of the things that you've done in terms of that information, I mean, you're not, you're certainly not kind of like living in the past because something that you did uh, or, or released rather a couple of years ago was the plant based cyclist, basically a vegan diet for cyclists ostensibly. And for that, you also undertook a vegan diet for yourself for a couple of months. And it just sort of, it, it reminded me of the debate that came up when that documentary on Netflix called The Game Changers was circulating and everyone was talking about, hey, wow, hang on a second, the vegan diet isn't just for people who just look fairly emaciated, which is the horrible concept we have. You've got serious weightlifters here. You've got a track cyclist competing into her like 40s and 50s. You've got pro-level athletes. But at the same time, as far as I know in cycling, Bar maybe, you know, Adam Hansen is someone who says that he rode a lot uh, with a vegan diet and he rode 20 consecutive tours to France. But there's not been a notable champion who is a vegan. You know, you are the person that can finally answer this question for me. Can champions compete in endurance sports, compete with a vegan diet? Or is it just sort of not possible, unfortunately, because of the way that food is and the expenditure you need to make in terms of calories? No, 100% I believe that people can compete at uh, the highest level on a plant-based diet. And if anything, it's easier now than, than what it's ever been because we've got a greater understanding. And and the reason that I did that uh, that book, um, the reason I, for my research, went on, on a plant-based diet, even though I'm a Yorkshireman and pretty much a carnivore, was because... I'd been doing some uh, videos for GCN and we've been talking about recovery and been talking about protein and all I've been talking about were, you know, dairy and animal-based proteins and, and, and a comment was, but what about the plant-based proteins? And, and I thought, you know what, you're right. And this is part of my learning is when somebody gives me a challenge, I need to learn more from it. So that led me to look at that that and for my own sort of experiment. And the results from that, while they were very positive, then you've got to look at it in context. So I, I followed a plant-based diet at the end of the season when I weren't traveling, so it were easy to do. And the, the typical thing when you're on the road in cycling, you're not very fit. So, you know, a few kilos heavier than what I should have been, not very fit. 
So I went, went on plant-based diet. I were able to go out on my bike five days a week. I were able to do the gym, all these things. And over that period of time, I think I lost about seven kilos of body fat and gained about two, two or three kilos of muscle, something like that. And I, I had my blood, I had my, my blood markers done and and, uh, and all my bloods were, were great. And I, I really learned a lot from that around then ensuring we get in the proteins. And when I was been training as a dietitian, I was told that that plant-based proteins were not the same or were very inferior to animal-based proteins. And actually, they're not. They might not have the same amino acid profile, but we can still get all the amino acids from them. And this then really made me look at you know, ensuring not in the past it might have been, oh, you just need some chicken or you just need some milk. But actually, if we get proteins from different sources, we're then spreading those nutrients. And one of one of the really good protein foods that I've used a lot from uh, from a plant perspective for myself and with athletes is is pistachio nuts. So pistachios, uh, American pistachios in particular, are. I've got a they're, they're they're a complete protein, so they provide all those amino acids. And so again, if we have that combined with some other foods, we can really improve that profile of the of the protein. There, one of the things I found out recently as well is that that things like the nut, the pistachios are also really high in antioxidants. So they're one of the only foods that I'm aware of that are a high protein and iron antioxidants. And this is, again, one of the things we're starting to understand more about nutrition is we have got this this large increase at the moment in these ultra-processed foods, which are not really giving us any nutrition, they're only giving giving us calories. And we are needing more of the foods that are providing the quality nutrition as well as the protein. So back to the plant-based, I think that somebody who's a serious athlete can be plant-based, but they really need to look at the food. So one of the things, and again, the research isn't there. So you, you're working on first principles. So one of the things I've been looking at with a, a plant-based athlete would be looking at using things like beta-alanine, some creatine, which are lower in that, in the, on that vegan diet. We'd be looking at some iron. We'd be looking at vitamin B12. We'd be looking at a range of things. But actually, these are a lot of additional nutrients that I would look to use that with a non-vegan athlete as well. But I think that the main reason that we are not seeing as many plant-based elite athletes coming through is cultural and is also it's very difficult if you are in a cycling team to be following that vegan diet. But I was quite fortunate to actually have a cup of tea with uh, Adam Amstead, uh, I think it was in the last year of his career, and I was chatting to him about that, and he was absolutely fastidious about it. And he had a he he was a I mean a super intelligent guy. If you ever get the chance to interview him, he's super intelligent. He had really researched this, and his nutrition was absolutely on point. So, but he he basically when he went away with the team. He had to take care of all the additional things himself. There's also Brody Chapman, who's an Australian 
uh, professional cyclists uh, riding with FDJ. She's a, a very strict vegan, and uh, Brody's helped me with a few recipes that I've used in a in a new book. Yeah, no, I mean, it's. I think it would be so interesting if there was a team, a kind of test team that was just put together. I particularly, yeah, it could have a mixture of some athletes who were who had been vegan, or yeah, let's just stick with the plant based who'd been vegan for their you know most of their lives and maybe athletes who flipped into a vegan diet and then they undertook riding grand tours and we saw the effects of what it looks like to have that sort of diet when you're actually trying to do something like the Tour de France because it strikes me that there's not that many test cases which therefore makes it difficult to you know draw any conclusions and i suppose cycling is nothing if not very conservative yeah, but it, I mean, this might be before your time that there was the Linda McCartney. Oh yeah, Paul, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and we, we, Bradley Wiggins rode for them, didn't he? Back in back in. I think Bradley did actually. Yeah. I never actually spoke to him about that. But I remember talking to Russ Down then, and uh, they all had to uh, basically signed a contract to say that they'd be vegetarian. Really? And yeah, apparently were done really, really strictly. Yeah, so that they all had to. Basically, you know, you know, promise to follow a, a vegetarian diet. <laughs> well, yeah, there we go. Um, so, sort of picking up again from you know where we where we left off in terms of like the development of sports nutrition, and moving moving away from the plant based thing for a second. Ketones is such, or has been, such a, a massive buzzword and concept. What do you think of ketones? Because it's this, you know, and, and again, please correct my very basic understanding, um, but it's like you've got three, so they say, you know, three energy sources. You've got, you've got fat, you've got glucose glycogen, which is in your bloodstream and in your muscles and in your liver. Is that right? In your liver? Yeah. And then you've got ketones, which breaking down fats in your liver produces. So it's like, you just give your body ketones as opposed to asking your body to turn fat into ketones. And so suddenly you've got this triple whammy, whereas other people are just functioning on effectively two energy sources. A, is that is that broadly speaking correct? I'm not sure. Um, and B, is there any efficacy in what you've seen to ketones? Yeah, so ketones are fascinating. They've been around for whew, quite a while, really, 12, 15 years. Uh, they've been commercially available for, I don't know, five, five or six years. What we're talking about with ketones is what, what we'd call exogenous ketones. The body produces ketones. Again, when I was trained as a as a dietitian, I was trained that that basically your body produced ketones when, when you're starving and that you, you couldn't use ketones until you're in a starvation state, and that's not fully true your body can use ketones very effectively at any time and as an energy source the fascinating thing is we have what 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 we term glucose dependent tissues so these are only uh, tissues that they can only use glucose so the brain is one the kidneys one but that's not quite true because it can use ketones really effectively and, the, and initially ketones, exogenous ketones, artificial ketones were being developed to look at helping with, with conditions such as epilepsy. And we're looking at some clinical conditions. And, and one of the areas it's trying to be looked at using now is, is part of concussion treatment. And so the brain can use ketones super effectively. When we were first looking at using ketones, then 
what we were looking at using it was very, very much like you said, this auxiliary energy source. In particular, I've, I felt that some of the benefit would be around the, the, the cognitive for the brain. So in a time trial type situation, if your blood glucose is dropping, you know, if you're feeding in a time trial on a regular basis, keeping your blood glucose a long time trial, then that's affecting your aero position. So actually by having some ketones in there, if your blood glucose is dropping a bit, you're still feeding the brain. So, you know, that one one of the ideas that you've got this auxiliary uh, energy system in in cycling, it's being used as uh, an adjuvant energy source for within uh, within racing. But the biggest thing that that it's being used for more recently, and that, and I doubt that there's any any world tour team that doesn't use ketones in in one way or another. To be perfectly honest, is around recovery and helping helping with recovery. Still not fully understood exactly. Then there's a few theories around it how it's really enabling recovery. But when when I've used it with with uh, tour riders to help with recovery, we've had very good uh, very good feedback uh, from from riders there. Altitudes another one where people sometimes will use some ketones at altitude as well. So the ketones is a really, really interesting part of it. How useful, again, it is for the club rider, it'd be a very difficult one to say. The, the, the companies that are producing it are trying to market it at everybody. I, d- I don't personally think that it is as big an impact as what the companies would be suggesting, but I certainly do think at the elite level, with the current understanding we have, there is a very strong rationale, and I've seen some positive results from the use of ketones in both from a fueling perspective in certain situations where we think that we can't get enough carbohydrate, and then also from the recovery perspective. Does that answer that question? It does, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that leads us nicely into um, where where I where I kind of was hoping this might end up this this chat which is where do you see the next advances being made because as you say we've gone through understanding that we shouldn't be drinking cow's blood and balling up the insides of our baguettes through to <laughs> trying to analyze you know um our microbiomes in our guts and working on digestive issues through so yeah through to these like mega fueling carbohydrates and maybe even um other super auxiliary sources like ketones where are we going next or have we kind of hit peak because we are ultimately only vessels aren't we we've got a human body that's a receptacle and it can only take so much have we just got to the point where we can't really do much more with our nutrition well i think pardon the pun with this one but i think we've i think we've got the low-hanging fruit (laughs) i think we've got i think i think we've got the the easy things and i always i always think well actually well, well, yeah, you know, I've always, I'm, even now, I'm still in front of the curve of, of of what we're doing and and how we're working, and I'm not so sure that we're going to get big breakthrough breakthrough in the science. And in effect, like with the carbohydrate, we've always known that carbohydrate is so important for the energy. The breakthrough has come with the innovations. And it's the innovations which is going to be the bring the things that bring the left field in. So the one that is super interesting at the moment, and we're 
we're doing a, a lot of work on this with from a, a an athletics point of view is with the the new delivery of uh, sodium bicarbonate uh, by Mortam. We're using their hydrogel system. And so I think that they, so we've seen some, some and again, this is being used extensively now in, uh, in professional cycling. And we've seen some really interesting things there around performance and recovery. We're doing some research around that from the application with, uh, with runners. But I think that the, 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 the advances, what we're going to see is, one is going to be innovations on delivery, or how can we deliver things better? So we, you know, we've seen companies looking at trying to deliver things topically, but I think that the 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 real the real next, and we are moving there. But I think that it's there's going to be a greater focus on the food and the quality of the food that we get in, and a bigger distinction between the foods that we don't really consider providing our nutrition, and the greater focus on high quality nutritious foods. But then around the specific things around some of the products, I think that this is going to be more around innovations on on aspects of, of delivery and tweaking around the, the edges. But in saying that, something could come out left field, like say the Morton uh, bicarb system has been absolutely fascinating. So what does um, what role does sodium bicarbonate have in fueling performance? You know, most people will probably think about seeing it in the back of their baking cupboard. <laughs> well, I mean, anybody who's been involved in competitive, sort of shorter distance type of sports will be familiar of, of the use of sodium bicarb. So basically, when we're doing hard exercise and we've not got enough oxygen, the body produces lactate. People think of lactate, lactic acid. Not quite right, technically, but we produce lactate. As a consequence of that, we produce hydrogen ions, so that creates an acidic state. That increase in hydrogen ions reduces the breakdown of glucose, and that that basically controls or restricts our ATP, our energy production. So the harder we go in, we need more oxygen. When we haven't got that, we're then having this anaerobic uh, respiration, and that slows down because of the, the acid. The body naturally produces bicarb, as, and, and this is what we call a buffer. So these, this hydrogen ion is then buffered by the bicarb, which enables this harder exercise to continue for longer. It will, I don't know how many decades ago it will realise that if we take bicarbonate as a supplement, if we take it exogenously, take it as a drink, that actually it can increase our anaerobic work. And there's loads of research now showing that that this can increase the anaerobic work. And for years in cycling, we've used sodium bicarb- bicarbonate as a strategy in uh, things like Team Pursuit, Kilo, things like this is, is, is very much routinely used in that. Time trialing, even longer time trials, Use it within that. Used it within some specific time trial training. The big issues with taking sodium bicarbonate is that it can have a really uh, negative effect on the gut. So a lot of people will get like an osmotic diarrhea from it. It also can make you feel pretty crap, pretty sick. Massive sodium load as well, so you could get a big, big fluid load from that. But and and it's something that you know it says used has been used extensively 
in in cycling over, over the years. I mean, I, I've known riders that part of their race strategy when they were sort of two hours before the finish of a race would take a bottle of sodium bicarbonate on the bike. I could, couldn't quite work out why they were doing it, but that's one of the things that that they did. So Mortan, they were probably responsible. Some people probably challenged me on this. They were probably responsible for the shift in these commercially available high-carbohydrate sports drinks. So they they looked at it and they went, okay, we're going to produce something that's going to be gastrically more tolerable. And so they we I started we started using their products. I think it was 2016 or 2017, and this is where you could easily put, you know, 80 grams of carbohydrate in a uh, in a 500 ml bottle. Could even put more in that, and the and the riders could consume it. And what they did was they developed something what they call hydrogel technology. So this is where you've got very specific amount of pectins and alginates, and the whole idea with this is that it almost encapsulates the carbohydrate. This is what is claimed, and there's a bit of research to back it up. And then this helps the transport from the stomach into the small intestine, where it's then fully broken down and, and absorbed. This were a big disruptor in the sports drinks market. The, the, this were a really big disruptor. Then we've had companies producing other products. So we, you know, we've got things like uh, Science in Sport now with the Beta Fuel. So there's a, all these products now. Again, they're all this neutral pH concepts and, and all this. But we're, we're really interested in it, but the Morton that were the, the dis, disruptor uh, with this. And then and then been looking at other applications of this technology, and they've gone, okay, if we can use this to better administer sodium bicarb, is this something that's useful? And so they've then developed this. So now you can take the sodium bicarb in almost like a – a wheat blancmange type consists. So you have this hydrogel that you make up, you put the bicarb in it, which are in enterically coated small pellets about the same size as a sweetener. You eat it with a spoon. It goes through the stomach into the small intestine. And the fact it's not hitting the stomach acid means you need less sodium bicarb because it's not being neutralized. And then the profile of its, of its absorption is actually longer than what it would be when we were just drinking it. And this has been around now for one season, and it's been you. You, you probably will have read uh, early on in the classics. Jumbo Visma were talking about using baking soda in the in there. So it's you know, and there's quite a few team. Well, as far as I'm aware, nearly every pro team have been looking at, at using this application because people were using uh, the bicarb before. So what they've done is they've, they've got a very old uh, nutrition that they've applied a really clever technology that has then been uh, been able to be used in sports. So one of the things I do now, I work within athletics and and and, and a lot of people in athletics are looking at uh, uh, looking at how they can best optimize and use things like the uh, uh, this sort of product. And one of the things that's interesting with this, when we're doing the very hard exercise, the muscle becomes more acidic and Part of the recovery is the muscle needing to be coming back to a more normal, only static pH. And so it's believed as well that this uh, bicarbonate supplement can help with that. So one of the bits of feedback that people are seeing 
is that they're, they're, they're feeling they're getting a better recovery after they've been doing the training. So the question then is, is this something that is purely for the elites or is it something for the, for the club athlete? And I'd be saying that if you've got a very serious club athlete that is trying to do their PBs and do their best, then it'd be something for them to think about and, and consider. If it's somebody like me, complete waste of time and money, or if you've got somebody who's a, who's a very serious sort of age group, a club athlete, it would be something to look at. But I think that the, the preparation that, that Morton have done would be the preparation to, to really consider. Interesting. I mean, I'm with you, Nigel, I think. If it was someone like me eating tiny little pills of bicarbonate inside a strange blancmange-type consistency, I'm going to stick with the pistachios, thank you. I'm going to be going with yeah, the pistachios. Yeah. Well, Nigel, thank you so much. That was an incredibly enlightening chat. I'm going to have to go away and re-listen to this myself just to like pick out some 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 more more nice instructions to how I can basically better eat on the bike because that's kind of the other thing, isn't it? I feel like I cycle to eat and I eat to I cycle. So <laughs> why yeah, not? Why not? Well, Nigel, thank you very much for joining us on the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Welcome. Great talking. So, Nigel Mitchell. Ladies and gentlemen, what a lovely chap, a very, very chatty guy as well, in the best possible way, as we had some really nice chats off there. He was telling me just um, how lovely Chris Froome is, um, amongst other things. I'd love to have put in more, but um, there is a point, isn't there? You might not even be listening to this because that point has already come where podcasts can get a little bit long. But I was fascinated, particularly with the chat about where things are going to go and that it's all about delivery how you get your nutrition into you that's going to be the new, or it kind of already is, but is the focus for sports nutrition. Um, Because, you know, we can only, there is a finite amount of calories we can kind of process. But if we can get those calories in more quickly, then we can effectively fuel more efficiently. And then there's the bicarb soda, which uh, my erstwhile colleague, it's a great word that, isn't it? Erstwhile, it makes him sound very grand. Peter Stewart who, I'll, I'll tell you, Peter's gone to Cycling News. That's, that's another, that's a competitor website. So Peter, if you're listening from your competitor website towers, um, hello, I miss you. Anyway, Peter undertook a legal doping program for Cyclist Magazine, which did see him take things like creatine and uh, protein powders and various things, but also bicarb. And he said it really, really worked. But there was a fantastic turbo session he was doing in the offices at the time because he was doing kind of like regular ramp tests to see where he was, his uh, performance was going, what his power numbers looked like. And he got some really good scores and he came and sat back down and just looked absolutely white as a sheet. He was so green and sweaty. I say white as a sheet. He was also yeah, looking green around the gills, white in the face, and lo and behold, he had to go off and be sick. And because bicarb is actually really disgusting. When we were children, they used to say that really mean children used to rub bicarbonate of soda on bread and feed it to pigeons, and the pigeons would fly off and explode. Make of that what you will. And also seagulls, because we grew up in Portsmouth. So, I don't know, it's probably not very good for your guts, is it? But that is what Nigel was saying. If we can work out a way of taking these things, and get them into our bloodstreams without kind of the gastric upsets uh, that come before the endurance athlete as they try and eat on the go and eat things that should normally belong in cakes, then we can maybe reach even higher heights. So on that note, dear listeners, thank you so much for joining me. I'm sorry it's just been me on my own the entire time. Goodness me. 
what an ordeal. I'm sick of the sound of my own voice, so I'm just going to have to go and lie down in the dark room with some earplugs in and just listen to my heartbeat. And I suggest you do the same too, because that can be actually quite therapeutic. Until next time, have a lovely, lovely time doing whatever you're doing, which is probably cycling, I hope, or lying down. Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers a training plan specific to your needs. But the really smart thing is how Join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then Join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal. It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair Join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts. Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of The Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join. Don't forget that The Cyclist Magazine Podcast isn't just a podcast. The clue is in the magazine bit. We were a magazine first and we still are. We're a monthly magazine. And right now, you can subscribe for three issues for £5. Just check out cyclist.co.uk. And there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running, which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet, which is a very, very light gilet, which apparently, I know I've got the jacket version, and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it because that's how thin the thread is. And this is a gilet version. So it's probably, you know, it hasn't got the arms, but it's probably got about 40K in it. But they're really, really good. They're weatherproof, windproof, all that jazz. I can absolutely vouch for it. It's a £75 free gift for subscribing, ladies and gents. So check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now.